Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and perhaps you can't tell by looking at me, but I am a nerd. I've been a nerd for many years, and I'm good at it. In this show, I'd like to give you tips on how to be the most successful and well-informed nerd that you can possibly be. I speak with interesting people about cool things. Please join us if you're so inclined. This is Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and welcome. I'm speaking with Justin Penniston, writer and co-creator of, of Hunt, the comic book, the web comic Hunter Black, and also recently announced uh, writer on Sonic, uh, the series coming out in 2022. Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, thanks for having me on. And I'll say for uh, for all my listeners and viewers, Justin and I have known each other for many, many years. So if the conversation seems very familiar at points, uh, that's why. Um, that's because it is. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So tell me about, let's talk about Hunter Black. Where did, um, you know, you've been writing for years. Um, where did, where did the idea for Hunter Black come from? Like where, you know, cause you have a million ideas in your head. Why did that one pop up and become the idea that you chased? You know, um, so my collaborator, William Orr and I mm-hmm. were roommates at the time and we had both discovered the graphic novel adaptations of Richard Stark's Parker novels, mm-hmm. uh, done by cartoonist Darwin Cook, uh, rest in peace. Um, and so we read the first one, the, the adaptation, the graphic novel adaptation of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Hunter has been, you know, sort of made into movies a bunch of times. Uh, payback is the one that with Mel Gibson is the one that stands out in my mind as being an adaptation of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically the story of uh, a, a crook, a thief who gets betrayed by some people and ends up in prison for the first time ever in yeah. his career. Mm-hmm. And he wants, he, he escapes and he wants revenge and he wants his money, mm-hmm. you know? And it's this really like hard boiled kick-ass crime story. Mm-hmm. Um, and Darwin cook did, uh, was famously, he was an animator, mm-hmm. uh, with WB for a while. He worked on some of the Bruce Tim Batman, the animated series type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really did some, uh, some comics with DC, worked on Catwoman. Uh, he did, uh, the Justice League New Frontier comic, which is one of the best comics ever done, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so I was excited to take a look at his, uh, Parker stuff because I'm a bit of a fan of, you know, noir comics in particular, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Um, and we were blown away, absolutely blown away by these books. They were so amazing. Um, and, you know, I think after I read them the first time, I ran into Will's room and I was like, dude, <laughs> I want to make something like this, uh-huh. you know. And, you know, I'm a writer. He was an artist. At the time, we thought, you know, whatever we do next is going to be an animation pitch. Mm-hmm. He really wants to work in animation. Comics definitely were not something that was on his radar in particular. And I just knew that we wanted to work together on something. Now, we didn't want to just completely rip off what we were reading, you know. Right. And, uh, but, and coincidentally, as you may know, Chris, um, Will and I were both big Dungeons & Dragons nerds, you know. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh, you yeah. play D and D. Indeed, indeed. I, I may have rolled a D twenty once or twice. Um, and so we immediately thought, okay, let's do a fantasy version of this kind of story. Let's do a hard boiled hmm. fantasy comic, or uh, at the time, animation pitch. Hmm. And so we started putting this stuff together. I started working on what I thought was going to be a series bible, um, and Will started doing some designs and. The more into it we got, the more we liked what we were coming up with. Mm -hmm. And the more we thought, because at the time, this is like 11 years ago, almost, you know, um, we thought nobody's buying this cartoon. No one's putting this cartoon on the air. (laughs) It was a little, a little too bloody, a little too, you know, it wasn't, we hadn't really entered the full on era of adult swim and streaming or anything like that yet. You know, so we thought it was just a little before its time. Mm -hmm. Um, but we didn't want to abandon the idea and we didn't want to be beholden to anybody else. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to beg for the chance to get the story out there. So we decided let's just do a webcomic, mm-hmm. um, which we had never done before. Uh, we did some research. Let me ask you this what? real quick though. Sure. Had, had, like what was your experience at that point with um, working on in animation writing? Had... Um, I think I had no experience writing animation at that point. Um, like how much industry experience did you have? I guess that's the point of the question. Now or then? Then, at that time. Then I, oh, I had some comics experience, mm-hmm. but uh, animation was something I was thinking, you know, we were going to try to break into. You okay. know? It, honestly, it was probably Hunter Black was one of the things that, grease the wheels maybe maybe i had started writing uh i a few years before i started hunter black i had you know i had a few comics credits to my name yep and i had befriended um some of the guys from man of action you know joe kelly and duncan rulo steven siegel and joe casey mm-hmm. um and they had advised me a little bit how to pursue my career because i'd all worked in comics of course and eventually one of them came to me and said hey have you ever written an animation? And if not, do you want to? Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, the guys in Man of Action are pretty cool about, you know, A, they, they executive produce shows, so they have more work than they can do to just themselves. Mm-hmm. And B, I think they like to develop, you know, people that they have a rapport with, you know. And so I was lucky enough to be one of those people, and they took me on and had me, I mean, you know, start the first thing I did with them was on a European and Italian cartoon called Gormiti Nature Unleashed. Yeah. And I wrote uh, two or three episodes of that. And the, one of the Gormiti series is actually on Netflix now, although it's not the one I worked on. Yeah. So you just I, got, you jumped forward there to to how you got on Sonic. Is that is that sort of what you're answering now? Oh, no, well, just, just how, because this was all happening sort of around the same time. You know, Hunter Black oh. and me getting into animation was sort of happening concurrently. Oh, okay. Okay. It wasn't until, but they were just so distinct from each other. You know what I mean? And honestly, it hasn't been until just recently that I felt, okay, maybe I have enough connections and enough juice to at least get good animation pitches made and looked at, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But back to Hunter Black. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, you know, I, I, we wanted to do animation. We quickly realized we probably weren't going to be able to do animation. 
Mm. And so we moved into being a comic because we were both super excited about it. You know, mm. I mean, I mean, it's everyone who reads Hunter Black kind of knows this, but I started off by taking a lot of the characters and straight up naming them after D and D characters. You know, they, a lot of a lot of characters from old D and D campaigns yeah. ended up in this comic. Why not? It's pretty cool to do it that way. <laughs> so the first Darwin cookbook was called The Hunter. Mm-hmm. And so I straight up, we were like, you know, this is an homage. We're going to call it Hunter Black. Yeah. That's going to be his name. Uh Um, And that, you know, some of the same basic premise stuff is in there. You know, Hunter is a criminal who is betrayed by, you know, people who he worked with and he ends up imprisoned and he escapes and wants his revenge. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that we just took that and ran with it in a different direction. You know, Mm -hmm. I like to think, Star Trek was Wagon Train to the Stars. I mean, it was a space Western, you mm-hmm. know. Then uh, Star Wars was a space Western. Yeah. Firefly was a space Western. Yeah. But they all feel very distinct from each other, you know. Right. And so that's kind of what we were thinking. We, we took the basic idea behind what Darwin Cook was doing and what Richard Stark before him had done mm-hmm. and decided to put our own stamp on that sort of, you know, revenge crime stories, you know, genre. So, so when you figured out how to do a web comic, you know, the, all the, the business side and, and how to, the technical side and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, well, how, how, how much work was that? Like figuring all that out? Was it tough? Um, yes and no. It's not tough to start doing a web comic, figuring out how to do that. That wasn't that hard. Mm-hmm. Figuring out how to do it. Well, it is a work in progress always, mm-hmm. you know? Um, like what do you when you say, well, where's the well part come in? Like what what could you do wrong? Oh well, the biggest thing, the first thing we learned, and I think that this is something we really took to heart, was that the the biggest thing to make someone lose interest in a web comic, particularly a long form web comic like what we're doing, mm-hmm. you know, because ours isn't a, like a daily strip. Ours is you know, a page of a, of a long comic, it gets posted three times a week. Right. Um, so it was vital that we don't have delays, that we don't miss days, that we stick to a schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have only missed a posting day one time in 10 years. Oh, wow. And that was only because we straight up blanked on it. You know, we, we just, we thought, you know, we beat, each thought the other would post the page. We didn't worry about it. And we went a whole weekend without realizing, oh, we didn't post Friday's page, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and there was no, you know, we didn't have a good excuse. We just forgot. But that's happened only one time. We've never had a problem with content. I mean, we decided from the beginning that we would always be at least four weeks ahead mm. before we started, you know. And the idea was at the time we were only posting two pages a week. So we didn't start, we didn't post our first page until we were working on page nine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, right now, because both Will and I have a lot going on, we both, whenever we have a free moment, work like mad on Hunter Black, you mm-hmm. know, uh, to make sure that we always have a cushion in case we get stuck having to do other stuff for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Will is, five or six weeks ahead Hmm. in terms of pages. And I'm probably another month ahead of that in terms of writing. I'm speaking with Justin Penniston, writer and co-creator of the indie comic Hunter Black and writer on the new Sonic series. 
You can find more information about his work at hunterblackcomics.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. How do you plot out something that is lasting this long? You know, how far in advance can you plot it? You know? Well, we always knew the ultimate end. You know, okay. we knew where point A was. And we knew where point Z was. Um, and shortly before we got started, we figured out where points B, C, D, and E were. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? After that, we just knew that somewhere we had to connect E to Z. Mm -hmm. um, and we we're going to keep doing it until we it's time to get around to wrapping it up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Until we feel like we're done. But we are definitely starting to close in on, you know, mm -hmm. beginning to end, if that makes sense. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we could squeeze for ourselves we we probably have maybe uh, we have a few more years i'm sure you know okay before we before we call it quits mm -hmm. um i don't think right now we're telling stories you know what i mean mm -hmm. and what'll happen is i'll say i want you know okay for the next story i want x to happen in hunter's quest for revenge mm -hmm. you know um and sometimes it's something that takes him away from his quest for revenge or sometimes you know mm -hmm. I might decide, hey, I want him to try and fail to take out one of his opponents or, you know, something. Mm -hmm. And usually at this point now, because we've done so many pages, there's something that we've talked about or done already that I want to explore further. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that'll that'll usually take place. Um, and, you know, to a degree, I think a certain amount of my my political or philosophical leanings mm -hmm. play into how I decided what we're going to do for a story. Um, mm -hmm. For example, uh, we're right now setting up our fifth volume mm -hmm. and I'm making it very clear that this is that the world, the setting is at war. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, that war, that's not Hunter Black's concern. He doesn't care about the war. He cares about his revenge. Mm -hmm. It's just an obstacle, you know. Okay. But, you know, I thought if the world is at war, how would that affect, you know, how does that change things? And I thought, okay, it might be interesting. War affects, you know, innocence. So, you know, the women and children are often the ones displaced and, you know, murdered, right. you know, in, in war, in wars that they're not actively fighting in. And I thought, well, if there's a world of wizards and warriors, how would those innocents be protected? So... I decided that some of the female wizards got together and made a safe zone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're basically keeping 
all but you know the very old and very young in terms of men out mm. and you know but otherwise allowing women and their children to, to be in and some of the people that hunter are after are women and they've taken refuge in there yeah and so hunter's got to figure out how to get in there and get after them you know <laughs> so yeah. and you know it's you know and because i'm I, you know i i'm interested in the way choices by governments and by big organizations affect the little guy mm. so that's and at the same time i'm interested in wizards making <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. you know, making cool barriers to, to you know stuff like that so yeah so what would what would you say hunter black's like what's his alignment Ooh. His alignment is probably true neutral. Mm. I mean, he's not, he certainly, I mean, he kills for money. He kills people for money. He was a hitman. That was his, you know, his thing. Mm -hmm. But he did have a certain scruples about it. He, um, before he began his quest for revenge, it was, you know, it was never personal. He wouldn't take just any job, you know, um, he killed people. He thought that person kind of deserves to die. I'm going to go ahead and take him out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, no matter how you put a shine on it, murder's not a good thing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, but Hunter doesn't really, as a rule, cause pain for pain's sake. He's not really a torturer or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, he's just good at killing. Yeah. And, you know, that's how he made his money. Okay. So, true neutral, maybe neutral evil. Hmm. You know, he, he, uh, he has a loose ethos right now. It's really driven by his need for revenge though, you know, mm -hmm. but he doesn't like breaking his word. Uh, he's so angry at having been betrayed. He doesn't like betraying other people. You know, mm -hmm. he, he's aware of that, how that would be hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And he has people that he cares about. You know, at first he didn't seem to care about anybody, but he's developed relationships over time. Mm -hmm. And, Sometimes he realizes that this relationship means something to me, and he's forced to confront the question: mm -hmm. Does it mean more to me than my revenge? What means more to me, and what am I willing to do? You know, am I willing to put this relationship at risk right. for the sake of you know killing somebody? How about how about meditation or just accepting things as is and letting his anger go? How about that? I have definitely played with the idea of him trying to move on mm. uh not through meditation because you know <laughs> come on but uh you know he, he's definitely been given the opportunity to to, to sort of give up his quest mm. and the, the problem is he's got this magic sword mm. and this is this magic sword is specifically there to take revenge yeah. you know and he's also got the i mean he's going to die Hunter Black is, he's got a terminal disease hmm. and the sword is keeping him alive. You know, a little touch of Elric, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Moorcock in there. Yeah. Um, and he, he sort of has to pursue his quest. He doesn't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. And every time he thinks about, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this, something bad inevitably happens. So. Okay. Yeah. So talk, since I mentioned before off, off camera, um, about Redditors talking about asking about your comic book writing <laughs> experience. Yeah. So, so can you talk about some of the industry stuff? Um, you, you know, the big, 
the big uh, sure. company stuff. So I, I mean, I wanted to be a writer in comics basically since college. Mm. Um, and at that point, you know, and this was 30 years ago, nobody's really telling you how to get into comics, you know, and 30 years ago, comics were probably at the height of their popularity. Mm. And the horrible thing about comics as a business is that it's a job where there, there are way more people who want your job mm -hmm. than there are jobs available. Right. Way more, you know, and, and you know, I mean, comics is kind of unique. Not everyone who goes to the movies wants to make movies. Right. You know what I'm saying? But almost everyone who reads comics wants to make comics. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really crazy. Um, and they all think they can do a better job than you do, you know? So you have to stand out because in the comics business, anybody, you know, every, there's always someone else looking for that job. You know, there's certainly no comic company has a hard time finding bodies. They have a hard time finding people under deadlines sometimes, but that's a whole different thing. Right. Um, so it took me a while, you know, of beating my head against the wall by mailing, you know, submissions and thoughts and ideas to com various comic companies and having returns saying, yeah, we're not going to read this or, you know, that's fine, but no, you know, getting lots of rejections. Yeah. Finally, I met an artist who was kind of in the same boat as I was, wanted to get into it, but didn't really know how to do it. Mm. And we decided to work together and make our own comic. Mm -hmm. So we put together what's called an ash can, you know, basically a disposable comic, a comic you can show people to say this, look, it's, it's like a proof of concept, you right. know? Yeah. Uh, but it's called an ash can because at the end of the day, no one's saving that. No one's sticking it in plastic and hoping, you know, <laughs> they're gonna, they'll toss in the ash can when they're done, you know? Yeah. Until you um, become famous and then everyone wishes they had that. They still had it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did, me and my buddy Matt Filer, uh, put together an ash can for a comic series called Mask of the Dragons, mm. you know? And it was a, a modern fantasy, you know, fantasy is my thing. So, mm. And we, we put it together. We thought we'd try to sell it or, you know, pitch it to companies. And that didn't go over but so well. But I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to mail a copy of this to every editor at DC Comics. Mm. So I did that. I, I mailed, I found, I got the names of every editor, I, you know, and I mailed it out to everyone who was working at DC at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually somebody got back to me and said, hey, this is pretty good. Uh, I like your voice. Uh how would you feel about doing a filming issue for me? And so I got the chance to write a, uh, filling issue of blue beetle for mm -hmm. DC. Yeah. Um, and that was, the, I, I will never forget the day that I got that phone call from, uh, Joan Hilty, the editor at DC comics. I mean, I was talking to her and my, uh, my wife at the time and uh, her best friend were all here. Um, and maybe even Will was here, but, uh, I mean, I was on the phone just crying my eyes out, but keeping my voice steady. Cause I was so happy, you know, yeah. um, you know, and this is nerd, this was with Nerdvana, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. This was, yeah. you know, and like the, I'm going to write for DC comics yeah. and, you know, they asked me to pitch. So I pitched five or six different story ideas, you know, just one and done stories. And eventually they picked, she picked what she likes. She's going to sounds cool. Uh, I did a few drafts of a script for it, but, and eventually, you know, uh, they bought my script and turned it into an issue. And 
that was tremendously cool, you know? And the, the sad thing was I didn't really get to talk to the artist until after it was done. Uh. You know, we weren't collaborating during the process. Um, I would like to think that my scripts are very artist friendly. I know I try to make them artist friendly, you know, whether or not I succeed is, uh, you know, not up to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because a comic script is at the end of the day, it's a set of instructions, you know, to the artist. Here's what you need to do, mm-hmm. you know? And my definition of artist friendly is I'm very clear about what must be in the page. And I try not to step all over their ability to add things to the pages. They see fit. So how many pages is a comic book issue script? At the time, the standard was 22 pages. Um, there is no hard and fast rule for how many pages a comic can be. Uh, comics have always said, you know, extra size issue. This is a 36 page issue or 48 page issue or however many, you know, 60 pages. Like that, that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, 22 pages was the standard. I think 20 pages is the standard now. Okay. So, and then you did some stuff. You've done stuff after other comic books. Yeah. I, um, after working at DC, uh, doing that one fill-in, I did another uh, story for DC. I did a, an anthology piece about the character, Mr. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had my first, like, one of my first big, big setbacks in my writing career. Mm. Because I was in discussions to do a, a limited series that I pitched at DC uh, for a character named Sam, who is a member of the Justice Society of America and, you know, has sort of a noirish feel, you know, and he's a legacy character. And I had this really cool idea. There was discussion of an artist attached. And at the time, I was also a, a bartender working for the Hard Rock Cafe. And just as all of this is going forward, I get sent to open a new cafe in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. And like, and those things, those openings, opening a new restaurant is, it's hard work, you know, and they're, you know, 16, 20 hour days are not uncommon, mm-hmm. you know? And so I got there and I did that and I couldn't, I wasn't staying in touch with the people I needed to stay in touch with. And it was, and I sort of, I let that slip through my fingers. You know what I mean? I think maybe the tide also turned against me. Like, I'm not sure I would, it would have gotten done even if I had been on, on point, oh, Okay, but, but I mean, I don't know that for sure. I, I know that from myself that I, I know how I dropped the ball. I, I prioritized the job that was making me money mm-hmm. over the dream job. And, you know, and I paid the price. Yeah. And that was the last time I worked for DC comics. Um, I, uh, but I did a lot of, I've done a lot of indie stuff since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for IDW for space code publications when I was around. Um, I did some, I self published some stuff. You know, I, I put a few comics out there and uh, I'd like to say that I, you know, people have always genuinely seemed to like what I was doing. You know, I haven't gotten a whole lot of negative reviews, which is comforting, mm-hmm. but I also haven't gotten a whole lot of reviews, period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who's to say that, you know, the negative reviews weren't a comment. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and that then comes, we start doing Hunter Black. Mm-hmm. I start getting into animation. Come to find out that it's way easier and more profitable to break into animation, at least for me, <laughs> than it was, you know, than it is to do comics, you know? Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think animation seems way more daunting to the average would be writer. You know what I mean? Okay. I think 
people think that comics would be easy as a lower bar to clear, but I'm not sure that's the case. I think it's much harder to get in the comics than it is in the, in the animation. Huh, interesting. So, yeah. so just to, I know some people who are into Sonic will just ask, they'll just wonder what you, cause you mentioned before your connection to the game, you know? Oh yeah. I, well, I, you know, I was an early adopter. Well, I shouldn't say that. I had a Sega Genesis, yeah. you know, and my favorite Sega Genesis game was Sonic the Hedgehog. Mm-hmm. I played the shit out of Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> you know, like I played it to the point where, you know, I could execute at least the first half of the game, like flawlessly, you know, I could get every ring and do every, you know, like just not worry about, you know, missing my chaos emeralds and all, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and I just loved it. And, it, you know, it was one of those early games that had a, a surprisingly 3D feel, you know, mm-hmm. as the 16-bit games were, you know, expanding, you know, it, it looked more fully fleshed out and more animation-like mm-hmm. than its predecessors. And so I, you know, I loved it. But that is, th- that is the Sonic game that I really was into, mm-hmm. you know. I sort of, I don't want to say I outgrew it. I just, my video game interests moved in different directions. And if I'm being honest... If you're offering me the choice of playing a video game or playing D and D, I'm going to play D and D. Yeah, and that's you know that's sort of my you know. Not to go into any details, but at the time, were were you of a writer state of mind back when you were playing? Did you come up with like other scenarios or like imaginative stuff to do with the game at the time, or was you... oh not at the time, not at the time. No, I think I saw it much more as a puzzle to be solved than a story to be told. Hmm. But I would be lying if I said I hadn't thought about writing video games since then. You know, subsequently video games have become so varied. You know, I thought about maybe wanting to get into writing video games at some point. But, yeah, that's a big, um, yeah, right now at this point, video games are so so cinematic that, yeah. you know, writing for them seems pretty, you know, like you're almost writing a movie with a bunch of different, you know, like 10 times as many scenes because you could go any direction and, you know, they're so interactive that you have to, you basically have to find a number of possible outcomes and write them all out, you know? And yeah, writing a video game seems like a huge task, a huge task. I mean, they're basically choose your own adventure writ extra large, you know? Yeah. If you remember the old choose your own adventure books. Oh, I do. <laughs> I wonder how many, <laughs> the, how many viewers and listeners might. I'm speaking with Justin Penniston writer and co-creator of the indie comic Hunter Black, and writer on the new Sonic series. You can find more information about his work at HunterBlackComics.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out FullContactNerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. 
Actually, you know, I was going to mention, I just came across your old the issue of Mask that uh, that I got. I just came oh, wow. across that going through some of my stuff, and I, I was like, oh, man. That's a flash <laughs> yeah. from the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I look back on that, now, you know, it looks incredibly amateurish to me, you know. Eh, um, no, it looks pretty cool. It's, well, you know, it's it, it's got a real indie comics vibe to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done... I've been lucky to do enough work and to have some incredibly talented collaborators, you know? Um, and I think even now Matt would look back on his work on Mask of Dragons and be like, Oh my God, I don't want ever anyone looking at this, you know? <laughs> um, but that's how Will feels about the earliest pages of Hunter Black too. Hmm. You know, he's, he's not happy with those at all, you know? And they were great, you know, is he better now? Sure. You know, but they were great. And, I have a hard time with my own work. I just do. Um, I have a hard time watching episodes that I've written. That's really weird to me. Um, I have a hard time reading my comics. Uh, if I'm reading Hunter Black stuff, uh-huh. I'm only doing it for reference now. You know, I do it because yeah. I'm like, wait, I have to make sure I, I don't want to break my own continuity. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, yeah. So, who are some of your favorite, what are some of your favorite, uh, comic book titles, um, from the past and, uh, comic book characters? Cause I know you have a lot of friends in the industry, so you might be tempted to name some yeah. of those, but you know, let's talk um, about when you were young. You know, uh, I, when I, okay. So there were a lot of, th- I mean, I was a DC and a Marvel kid growing up, you mm-hmm. know, um, I loved and I, I loved the biggies. I loved Superman, Batman, Flash, and Green Lantern. Those four characters absolutely, you know, filled my mind. I, I, I especially Superman and Batman. Mm-hmm. In, in, in fact, it's fair to say I was more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. But once I started getting, you know, older, you know, I started getting into my teen years, and I, my reading taste became a little more sophisticated. You know, and this is the eighties. Mm-hmm. It was impossible not to be drawn to what Marvel was doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, DC had all those. They started doing all the, like, what was it? The Vertigo? The pun- um Oh, yeah. The Vertigo stuff. Yeah. Preacher. Like, yeah, Sand- and Sandman and Preacher. and Yeah. I mean, but that stuff was a little later. That's more like, I was a young adult by that time, you know? I mean, I think Sandman came out in 88 or 89, I think is when it debuted. debuted. Yeah, and, and Vertigo didn't even exist yet then. You know, that was Vertigo was still Vertigo was still like a year down the road. Mm-hmm. And and don't get me wrong, I was all about those. I mean, when you're like 17, 18 years old, and all of a sudden there are comics that are geared towards you, you know what I mean? Yeah. That, you know, because I was, you know, you know, a budding male, you know, <laughs> and you know, and I was a bit rebellious and doing my own thing. And you know, the comics were like that, you know. Yeah. Um at that time, you know, so that was kind of cool. But before that, I mean, I look back on it now and it's shockingly right wing to me, but I was absolutely weaned on the works of Frank Miller when I was a kid. Hmm. Yeah. You know, his daredevil, you know, was arguably the most exciting thing I could think of back then, you know? Um, Although the writer who probably influenced me the most, the most in good ways and in bad, was Chris Claremont, you know, mm. um, Chris Claremont is a comics writing genius. Don't get me wrong. When I say good ways and bad, 
But at the beginning of his run, he he is a much better writer at the end of his time, you know, on the X-Men than he was at the beginning. Okay. You know, he does a lot of telling you things that you're already seeing, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he was super wordy at first, you know. And I, I, I devoured his X-Men comics because they were still exciting. And so I tended to be a little, I had some of his same flaws. I tended to be a little wordy. I had to learn how to show and not tell, you know what I mean? Hmm. But, I mean, come on. Those X-Men comics at the time are the most foundational comics there are. You know, everyone yeah. knows those comics, you know. Yeah. Even people who didn't, didn't read comics. Yeah. Uh, John Byrne, of course, mm-hmm. was, you know, the hottest artist in comics in the early to mid-80s and, you know, was probably not as well uh, heralded as a writer as he should have been. I mean, his Fantastic Four run was, you know, also... If, if I had to pick a favorite run of comics ever, mm-hmm. I would be very tempted to say John Byrne's Fantastic Four run. Wow. Yeah. And considering, just considering how poorly Fantastic Four movies have done compared to the other Marvel, you know, <laughs> movie, comic book movies. Um, well, I think, A, I think that Marvel Studios and the Marvel Cinematic Universe you know, I think they have a very singular vision. They understand how to embrace their characters and how to let go of the things that won't work in film. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, but but they embrace those characters at their essence. And the other companies are, are you know, Sony and Fox, were a lot more hit or miss in that regard. You know, mm. I mean, if you're telling a Fantastic Four story and it's not at its heart about a group of heroes who are a family mm-hmm. and who are also devoted to learning more about the world. You know I mean? They're basically, you know, it's almost like they're Star Trek, you know, they're, they're, they're explorers and they, they don't fighting supervillains is not their first mandate. Mm-hmm. Exploring unexplored areas is they're really what they're into, you know, yeah. learning things and, you know, going places no one else can go because they have these amazing powers. Right. Um, you know, so if if you're not doing bonkers, over the top, crazy sci-fi weirdness, mm-hmm. but you know, with a beating heart around a family, yeah, then you're not going to do a good Fantastic Four story, mm-hmm. which is why the best Fantastic Four movie is still The Incredibles. Yeah, That's, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's at its heart, you know, it's a story about family. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, yeah. The Fantastic Four movies seem to be just about your usual fighting fighting the bad guys kind of stuff. and uh, they, they, To me, they seem to have missed the point thus far. I do like, and you know, this is not a, a popular opinion, I do like the fact that they went with really young versions of the Fantastic Four in the last much maligned Josh Trank version. Mm-hmm. Because I think at, at the end of the day, Mr. Fantastic's real superpower is, is his intellect, mm-hmm. not his stretching. Mm-hmm. And that's a much cooler power. Intell- amazing intellect is much more interesting in the young than it is in the old to me, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, I think a prodigy is more interesting than, you know, an older experience, you know, wise of scientist. Right. Right. So tell me about, um, Oh, actually I want to ask about, were you going to comic book conventions a lot, you know, to, oh. to connect with the industry? Absolutely. I went to, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say I went to comic conventions a lot. I went to San Diego a lot. 
Mm. I went to San Diego every year for like 15 years straight. Um, and, you know, I met people there and formed relationships there, including the Man of Action guys. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be where I am today in my writing career. Hmm. I didn't start doing other cons regularly until I wanted to have a table at cons hmm. and started, you know, I had to sell 100 Black stuff and promote the book. And that's when I started, you know, branching out to other cons like New York and C2E2 and WonderCon and, you know, mm-hmm. LA Comic Con and stuff like that. How um how uh, useful was doing that? Did it did it seem like it was worth? Do you get the the juice from the squeeze? <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because a I've been wanting to start my own comics imprint called uh, Freshly Squeezed Comics <laughs> because I you know I want to say we've got the juice, we got the pulp. You know that's that's my uh, you know <laughs> that's why I would want to do that. Freshly Squeezed Comics, um, but uh, it. In the moment, it always seemed like I wasn't really getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt that showing up, being recognized, you know, forming just the simple, hey, how are you? Good to see you again relationships paid off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Persistence helps, you know? Yeah. People seeing you there over and over again, that makes a difference, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are editors who know who I am just because they saw me a bunch of times at Comic-Con. And they know that I have been working, you know? And like... I I had some really great experience. I met Jeff Johns at San Diego one year, mm-hmm. and he and I just hit it off. And you know, I mean, this was a guy. You know, he was at the time, you know, at the, at the top of the industry. And he and I sat in a bar and talked about Aquaman and Hawkman and Martian Manhunter and just yeah. why we like these characters and what worked about them and what didn't work about them and you know how you had to embrace some of the weirdness and some of the corniness to really make them work as you ignored the parts that's made that, you know, were so intrinsic to the character, mm-hmm. like, you know, like all the, the, the goody two shoes, white breadness of Superman, you ignored that you weren't going to, why tell a Superman story? Then? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, we had a great conversation and that later led to, you know, some other opportunities at least to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And later on, Jeff gave me, uh, a personal tour of the DC Comics offices once they moved to Burbank. Oh, wow. You know, and mm-hmm. we and again, just because it was it, it was a great experience, it didn't necessarily lead to work. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that kind of networking. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I don't know, I don't want to be, a, and I don't want to be an opportunist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I want to be genuine, mm-hmm. and I had some really cool genuine experiences out of that. It was really nice, you know. Yeah. Well, I think if you're having fun w- with what you're doing, it shows. Yes, and it, uh, I agree. And obviously, agree. you're having fun. Um, t- tell me about some of the other stuff that inspires you, like beyond comic books, and you know, let's go into shows, movies, books. Oh man, I know um, it's a ton. It's a lot of stuff, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> like like most people my age, I mean, Star Wars was a transformative, you know. Mm-hmm thing for me seeing star wars for the first time mm-hmm. as a little kid in the theater you know i i don't know that i'd be the same person if that hadn't happened you know what i mean that was incredibly i mean as i talk to you now over the computer right behind my monitor is a star wars movie poster on the wall you mm-hmm. know what i mean like it's it's that is there's no overseeing the power of of that on me mm-hmm. um I, you know, I don't talk about this. I don't mention this a lot, you know, when people ask me this question, but 
I'm suddenly struck that I remember when I was in the seventh grade mm. and that was the year that the first G.I. Joe animated miniseries came out. Huh, yeah. You know, and it came on at three o'clock and we got out of school at two fifty. Mm-hmm. And I, my school was a little over a mile away from my house and I walked to and from school. So I had to run my chubby ass, you know, <laughs> that mile to get home in time to watch G.I. Joe that week. And like, after I saw the first episode, I was so hooked. I was like, it blew me away. And I absolutely had to, you know, to see everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, that era of cartoons, you know, the era of G.I. Joe and Transformers and Thundercats, mm-hmm. you know, that stuff is definitely deep in my soul. Yeah. Let me see. I really loved watching Robotech on Saturday mornings. Uh, my little brother would come up to my bedroom in the attic mm-hmm. and wake me up every Saturday and we'd watch Saturday morning cartoons and, you know, starting with Robotech because it wasn't as popular as it should have been. Um, and I had no idea that Robotech was actually three different cartoons mashed into one, <laughs> you know, at the time. Like it all made, you know, it was so cool. <laughs> um, I was, you know, part of that generation of kids that grew up with Dukes of Hazard and Knight Rider and oh, yeah. Airwolf, you know, the, the vehicle action shows. Yeah. You know. Um, what about role-playing games back then? Like apart from D&D, which, which others did you dabble, dabble in? D&D is my first love. Mm-hmm. Uh, make no mistake. I always come back to D&D. Uh, I'm not, I've never been, I'm not a game mechanics person. So exploring other fantasy role-playing games is not really my thing. Mm-hmm. But I did play video game, I mean, uh, RPGs and other genres. You know, mm-hmm. I played I played the Marvel uh, superheroes game and villains and vigilantes and champions mm-hmm. all at different times. I tried them all. Uh-huh. I briefly played Boot Hill as a kid. Yeah. I briefly played <laughs> Top Secret as a kid. Yeah. I think I played Gamma World once or twice as a kid. Um I had all that stuff. Uh, I played the Star Wars role playing game oh, did for you? a while. Yeah, and, it, and in fact, I even ran. I ran a, a campaign briefly, set in my own original universe. Oh, that wow. was really more heavily influenced by the comic book Dreadstar yeah. than by Star Wars. You know. Yeah. And I was repurposing force powers as magic. You know, and huh. you know, doing the, that kind of thing. That was fun. Okay. Um, you ever play Paranoia? I forget no. if you ever never did no, Paranoia. I never played Paranoia, no. I played Call of Cthulhu and I played Chill. Oh, okay. You I know, haven't played those. those. Let me tell you, a good horror role playing game is hard to pull off, but it, if it's, when it's successful, uh-huh. it's amazing. Amazing. Some of the be- most fun, best fun I've ever had. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, for sure. I'm currently playing, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Uh, like, I was, I ate up Star Trek Next Generation. And I've seen probably two-thirds of all Star Trek has to offer. I've seen, you know, I've seen every episode of Next Generation, every episode of DS9, every episode of Voyager. I've seen not that much of Enterprise. I've seen every episode of Discovery, every episode of Lower Decks, every episode of Picard, most of the original series, almost none of the original animated series. Um, Which is pretty good, actually. I I recommend you read or watch that. I mean to. I, it's on my list. Yeah. Um, I've seen all the movies except for 
Star Trek Five Final Frontier because I keep hearing how bad it is. I just I'm like, <laughs> why why do that to myself? Uh, and now I'm currently playing uh, Star Trek Adventures online with some other you know quarantine folks. Oh, what's that? Uh, it's a, a relatively recent Star Trek RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it's one of those games that you're sort of bargaining with the DM the whole time, with the, <laughs> the game master, you know, Sounds you have to good. convince them that your solutions to problems make sense uh, and are workable. Uh, you know, uh, you're <laughs> aided by, you know, if you know Star Trek lore, that really helps. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, can pull off Star Trek, you know, you know, science techno babble, you know what I mean? If you can pull that off and make it sound convincing, yeah, that helps you, you know, <laughs> you know, you basically have, you have a list of like six attributes and a list of six like disciplines. Mm-hmm. And the disciplines are like command, con, engineering, science, medicine, security. Okay. Know? And you combine, so you have, you, you, you say you want to, I don't know, you want to beam somebody into a, you know, into a difficult environment, you know, you, you know, you try to couple your, you know, your reason you know, skill mm. with your engineering attribute, and that gives you a score, you know, and you have to roll under that. But okay. the the way the game works is you have to get a certain number of successes. And mm. so okay. what you do is you have talents and uh, skills and things like that that allow you to add die to your roll, you know. So, like, okay. I might need three successes to be the away team into this difficult environment. Okay. And but I, I only get two dice, but the ship that I'm on, you know, if, if it's a ship I'm, I'm familiar with, that will give me a, a a dice. If I have a focus in, you know, transporter technology, I can get an extra die from that. Like, there's all kinds of ways to, you know, if I have an engineering team, I can get them to help me. Mm-hmm. You know, someone else to work, you know, the pattern buffers or whatever. And you yeah. know, oh, let me tell you, it rewards being a nerd in such a big way. You know, <laughs> so and I find it. I'm playing with a group of people that I've not, I have not met any of them face to face, you know, uh. <laughs> um, but we are having the best time. They're really, they're, they're fun role players. The game, the game master, uh, Tilly Bridges, she is really on point, you know, like, and right now she's telling you, we are like, I'm an Andorian chief engineer. I'm so nerdy. This is so much fun. <laughs> um, I'm an Andorian chief engineer of the USS uh, Excalibur which is a Galaxy-class ship, uh, the Excalibur A, actually, because the original was destroyed, uh, we just went on a covert mission into the neutral zone and found a base with photon torpedoes in it that had cloaking devices, and the warheads were miniaturized Genesis devices from the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Okay. Like, it was crazy, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. it was so cool, you know? And you're like, oh, this is a huge threat. And uh, uh, Tilly, the GM, is running another game with another group. And our next session, our two ships are going to meet up. Like, it's oh, going to wow. be a crossover. Yeah, yeah. it's like, it's really fun. I'm really, it's really cool. So what, so I guess I've already figured out, well, what's, where in the timeline, the Star Trek timeline, does your, your our world campaign? Form? Yeah, it's can. currently it's set like five years after Star Trek Nemesis, after the last Next Generation movie. Hmm, okay. So okay. it's it's after 
that next generation to Voyager era of shows. Mm-hmm. But um, because Nemesis is set after the end of Voyager. Um, okay. But, you know, well before Picard and stuff like that. Right. So you haven't mentioned any fantasy books and others. Obviously, you like um, D&D, but what about fantasy stuff? Um, you know, I was obviously, you know, a Tolkien reader. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read Lord of the Rings any number of times. Uh, I I went through my Dragonlance phase, mm-hmm. you know, which is the marriage of fantasy novels and D&D. Yeah. Uh, I read the Shannara books. Uh, I read, I'm a huge fan of the fantasy novels by David and Lee Eddings, huh. like the Belgariad and the Melorian, the Elenium. Now, those are all fun series. And I, I regret that I was reading so much. I mean, you know, I mean, this is when I grew up, but so much typical sword and sorcery, Euro centric fantasy, you mm-hmm. know, I'm now more interested in modern fantasy. Mm-hmm. Less swords and sorcery, more street mages and stuff like that. Hmm. I read about a year ago this amazing novel called Ninth House mm-hmm. by Lee Bardugo. Okay. And it's basically like, to oversimplify it, it's the girl with the dragon tattoo meets Harry Potter. Huh. Okay. And man, it is so cool. You're like, it is set at Yale. Mm-hmm. university you know <laughs> uh-huh. and you know there are that the, the secret societies of yale which are famous right you know they're all attached to different disciplines of magic <laughs> oh, you know boy. and it's really cool it's a really cool book huh. um and you know so it's this murder mystery with this you know basically like for lack of a better term she's like uh you know a a scholarship student who doesn't belong there. You know, she doesn't fit in the Ivy League, you know. Yeah, attitude-wise or something. Yeah, she's a, she's a recovering drug addict. And, you know, yeah. she's a street kid. and But she's also a bit of a magical prodigy, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, so she gets embroiled in a murder mystery on campus. And it's it, it was a tremendous book. Um, it's the only book I've read by Lee Bardugo. But I know she's got other novels. And actually, I think on Netflix there's a new series coming out in, I think it's April called shadow and bone based on one of her fantasy series. Right. Right. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to watch that first before I read the books. Cause I believe you watch before you read because, yeah. well, if you, if you watch after you read, yeah, you yeah. become so aware of what was left out yeah, and what wasn't done, you know, but if you, it's, I feel like the books are, are primed to be a more enjoyable experience for me mm-hmm. than movies or shows as a rule. Right. Um, Makes sense. So I like to watch first so I can enjoy them on their own merits and then get the more fuller experience by reading the books. Right. Uh, only twice have I thought the adaptation is as good or better than the books. And that was Silence of the Lambs mm. and The Expanse. Hmm. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I haven't, I have the expanse books. I haven't, uh, I started reading one of them, but yeah, as you know, I'm on the ser- I'm watching the series. Yeah. How far are you, are you into the series now? So I'm wrapping up, um, season one. Yeah. I'm going to have to start season two. I, I was going to start binging you, it again this week. That, that is by far season one is by far the worst season of the show mm-hmm. by far. 
Like, if you make it through season one, you will be rewarded for your patience. Yeah. You know, a thousandfold <laughs> in the following seasons. Yeah. Um, like, our mutual friend Renee, who had been bagging on The Expanse so hard, yeah. you know, bagging on it, just came out in our text thread. It was like, oh, yeah. season two of The Expanse is one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen. I know. <laughs> I was like, what, what just happened there? I know, right? I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> You know, I was like redemption, validation. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm rewatching. I'm rewatching the Expanse now for the third time mm-hmm. because I'm doing a podcast with some people. You know, just on, with discussions on the Expanse. Yeah, what's that yeah. one called again? That it's, podcast. It's called Through the Ring. Yeah, but we haven't started releasing the episodes yet. Yeah, okay. We're right. gonna wait till we get about halfway through because we're gonna release it weekly. You know, and cover half a season in each episode. Mm-hmm. But we need to give ourselves the time to actually watch it, you know, because some of the people who watch it, who are doing it in the podcast have never seen it before and, yeah. you know, sort of give us a chance to, you know. So once we've got like six or seven episodes in the can, mm-hmm. we'll start releasing it, you know. Let me ask about your, your writing process. Obviously, okay. you've, you've written your writing for different sort of medium, media. Yeah. How, do you, how do you approach your writing? Well, in some ways, regardless of medium, I re- approach certain things the same way all the time, mm-hmm. um, and at least in the outlining phase. You know, um, I try really hard to know what my story beats are. You know, I, I use a, a pretty – I'm an adherent, I don't know, a proponent of I, – I've read the book Save the Cat by Blake Snyder, screenwriting mm-hmm. book, yeah. and his – breakdown of the three act structure rings true to me. You know, Mm -hmm. it works for me. Um, It's not the end all be all of storytelling because you have to, the structure itself is not the only thing you have to really focus on on the characters because character is everything in a story to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always start with structure and outlining, you know, and I, I write, I don't really do a bullet point outline so much as I just write paragraphs, you know, Okay. do, do a prose outline. But that's where I start with regardless of medium. Mm-hmm. And then if it's comics or if it's episodic television, you know, something that's, that's serialized and compartmentalized in nature, you know, then I have to start thinking about how I'm going to break up the story and how I'm going to make it work and how long it's going to be and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think my writing process is being influenced by the process I use or the process that I have to use when I work in animation, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is premise, outline, you know, first draft, second draft, polish, you know? Mm-hmm. And because, you know, at each step of the of the way, you're getting notes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I tend to think in those terms now, uh, you know, do this phase, get notes, okay, redo that phase, get notes, okay, move on, next phase, get notes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then I'm easily distracted. I have the attention span of a hummingbird. Um, <laughs> so I literally have to, when I sit down to write, I have to turn app killer, turn app killers on so I can't browse the net and I can't yeah. play any casual games on my phone. I can't do it, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm forced to do, the only things I could do are leave my office and go talk to my wife or watch TV or write, mm-hmm. you know. So that helps me get things done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it terrible. is it premature to ask what writing on a animation team is is like or what you expect it to be like? 
this is my first real Sonic Prime is my first real experience writing it, working in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it sort of has met my expectations in terms of process. Right. right. Uh, the people I'm working with, they have wildly exceeded my expectations. I have great collaborators there. You know, the EPs are wonderful. The story editor is wonderful. The other writers are all great. Everyone is generous and kind and open. Everyone's got a great sense of humor. It's, it's a really good team. So that's, that succeeded my expectations wildly. Um, Cause I know it's not always like that, hmm. but I expected that we would work together coming up with the big story beats. You know what I mean? Like, developing a season of serialized TV, because that's what TV is these days. It's almost always serialized, mm-hmm. you know. But then for it to be a, a slightly more isolated when working, you know, on your own episodes or whatever. And I am working, you know, relatively closely with, you know, a story editor and one or more of the, the executive producers. And it's not as isolated as I as things often are. You know, in independent comics... I don't have an editor, you know what I mean? I don't have anyone editing Hunter Black, which may be to its detriment, you know what I mean? Maybe I would be better served to have another voice, you know, mm-hmm. in my ear saying, have you considered that? What about this? That doesn't make sense, you know? And so that helps. Uh, I I like to think that I'm a natural collaborator. I will defend whatever the best idea is, whether it's mine or someone else's, you know? Mm-hmm. And it always works best when everyone is like that, when people hear a good idea and they embrace it as opposed to making sure their ideas are paramount, you know, like, right. You know, uh, I think I embraced a long time ago that there are three rules of being a professional writer, which are, you have to be talented. You have to hit your deadlines and you can't be, an asshole, you know? Yeah. And my experience with the writer's room is those three things writ large, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about some of the work you've done, non-writing work that you've done that, that's influenced sort of your, what you write and how you write? Well, so I mentioned that I worked, I I worked for the Hard Rock Cafe, you know, and I I worked there for decades. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, if you work someplace, someplace for decades and you don't get really good at it, that's really, that's not a good thing. You know, I was really good at the Hard Rock. You know, I, I I knew this really well. Um, I like to think that I'm naturally a people person and that serves me well, served me well in the service industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like helping people get better at whatever it is they want to do. You know, I do have a, a bit of a trainer's mentality. Mm-hmm. So I was a corporate trainer for them mm-hmm. and I opened cafes all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I opened restaurants in South Africa and Egypt and Japan and Vietnam and Canada you know, uh, I helped out all over the U.S. You know, I, I was lucky to travel and see things and meet different kinds of people, mm-hmm. you know. And meeting different kinds of people is, in my opinion, the best thing a person can do for themselves and for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's imperative, I think. it's I think it's your civic duty to realize that it's not all about you. Mm-hmm. And that there are other concerns and considerations and that everyone has a point of view and everyone sees a different world through their eyes than you do, you know? And I traveling and meeting all kinds of people and interacting with all kinds of people and helping them to, you know, learn what it was I was trying to learn to teach them in essence, a restaurant subculture, you know, Mm -hmm. 
that was that was invaluable to me, you know. So I like in my writing to find. I mean, look, I'm a Western dude. I'm a you know I heavily influenced by American and European stuff, but I like to broaden the horizons of whatever I'm working on with stuff outside of you know what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. As a result, you know, I think it tends to make me my experiences. I was just taken to task a little bit on uh, in a Facebook argument uh, because I was presenting my opinions as declarations. You know, I was saying, you know, this is the best, you know, the best thing that this filmmaker has ever made. And this is why, you know, and my, my declarative nature, you know, it was, I was, I was, you know, kindly reminded, gently reminded Mm -hmm. that some people are intimidated by that sort of, that level of bombast, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that definitely comes from being someone who had to stand in front of groups of people and say, this is how things are. This is how they're going to be. And this is blah, blah, blah. Right. You know? So considering there's all this different stuff you're into when you were young, though, I always ask this of every interview. Was there a particular power technology or, um, fictional setting that you yearned to be part of or that you wanted I know there's a lot out there with your your wild imagination, but I, I think that I was I've always been drawn to you know stories that are ostensibly as a genre the ordinary person taken to the extraordinary place, hmm. you know, like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and John Carter and the Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. you know, um, Narnia in particular was a big deal to me for a long time as a kid. Hmm. Um, yeah. And the idea that, you know, something like a closet or a wardrobe or, you know, or, or a manhole cover, like I could see anything that was a, an aperture and opening mm-hmm. to me conceivably could have been a gateway to another world, you mm-hmm. know, and more than that, a world where I might be special, like really special. Mm-hmm. Um, the first quote unquote adult novel I ever read was a princess of Mars, you know, by Andrew Rice Burroughs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a story about a, you know, John Carter was not an ordinary man. He was an extraordinary soldier, you know, who goes to, you know, a planet of war, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, I loved those books so much. <laughs> and I loved, I loved that idea of being taken to a new place a magical place, a place where, you know, the things that made me different made me special, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like I, I was a weird kid. I had an imaginary twin brother and my imaginary twin brother and I had imaginary girlfriends uh-huh. and the four of us, which was just me in my room, the four of us would go on adventures in, you know, strange places. Um, I remember, I distinctly remember going ghost hunting in the fifth dimension. You know, that was something that me and my friends did, you know, in my mind, you know, that sort of thing, really. Um, I used to fantasize as we were driving and I was sitting in the back seat, I would look out the window and I would fantasize about myself running at super speed alongside the car and going around and over things. Uh, That was something that was really big for me. I I did that too, but with uh with my brother and I we'd do that but it would be it wouldn't be us but we'd have super fast vehicles that could transform from like cars to planes to oh wow whatever just you know just 
going over the yeah. terrain. You know, as you're watching the landscape go by, you know, like seeing yourself for me, it was running. Cause I love the flash, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, that was something that was really, really big for me. I wanted to have superpowers so badly when I was a kid, so badly. And I remember, you know, when I was, I was probably six years old or so, mm-hmm. you know, and I was a full on comic book fan at that point. And I remember when I could feel, when you could feel heat emanating off of something mm-hmm. or cold, emanating, no one had ever explained that to me. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was developing a super, like an extra sense. Uh-huh. You know, I thought I, I convinced myself, I was like, oh man. I was like, you know, I'm going to, this is, and I said, this is only going to get more powerful as I get older, you know, you know, and you know, you know how, like when you hold your hand up, but you look at something beyond your hand, you know, your the image of your hand splits and you can see through some of it, you know? Yeah. I thought that was me developing x-ray vision. (laughs) I went through this whole thing when I was a kid where I was like, I'm from Krypton. Oh my God. I was like, my parents must have found me as a child. And they have raised me. They're teaching me to be better so that I can fight crime and to protect the world one day. And I was like, and I will not let down my alien parents who sent me. Like, I was I was so convinced. You know, like, you know. Oh, man. Yeah. And then when did you find out that uh, maybe you didn't have super powers? I think I eventually asked about, you know, the vision thing. I was like, you know, I can see through, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my dad explained it to me. And that was so disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> oh so uh, well. On to Plan B. <laughs> yeah, truth hurts. <laughs> right. Now you, I mean, you you played high school football though. You weren't like a total, you know. No, I played high school football and I wrestled. Yeah, I threw the hot shot, put in the discus. Um, I did stuff. I mean, I ran around. You know, I rode bikes and you know jumped over things and mm-hmm. popped wheelies and I skateboarded a little bit and, but. If given my druthers, I would have read constantly. Hmm. You know, I, if, if it had been up to me, I would have read constantly. My my mom, my parents would send me to my room mm-hmm. as a kid until they realized that I would just go to my room and read. <laughs> you were like, and oh, okay. It, and it wasn't penetrating that I was being punished. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they instead of sending me to my room, my mom would make me sit on the steps. Huh. You know, going upstairs, I would just sit on the steps I couldn't move. There was nothing to read, nothing to do. Mm-hmm. I would just sit there and cry, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, huh. but I also, I mean, you know, I, my mom just showed me, you know, I just had a birthday. So my mom was sending me pictures and stuff, mm-hmm. and, you know, pictures of me and neighborhood kids with towels pinned around our necks, you know, so yeah. we could have capes. And, yeah. you know, and I remember like there, there being this sort of hedge bush sort of thing. Uh, near our house that you could meander around inside of. And there were like little alcoves in the bushes and stuff. And, you know, we would horse around and play. I mean, I was, you know, a relatively outdoorsy kid, at least when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I was always a social kid. You know, I always got along with the kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I always had friends to play games with and stuff, you know. Um, when did you write your first story? Oh, man, I started writing my first story probably when I was five or six years old. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I, I was creating superheroes and drawing them. And then I started writing a story called Murder in Manhattan because that sounded cool to me. And I liked alliteration. Yeah. 
again, when I was maybe six years old, I thought I was going to write a mystery novel, you know, and I wrote a few pages of that. Mm-hmm. And I created these two protagonists, Mark Stone and Steve Jennings. And I wrote stories about them. They were like, sort of like secret agents, you know, <laughs> but they were secret agents in the, the Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mode, mode more than the James Bond mode, you know. Oh, okay. It, really sci-fi spy stuff, you know. And I remember that their spy organization was actually, was contained within NASA. You know what I mean? Like it was NASA's like Black Ops Division or whatever. You know? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> um, you know, that exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I played football. I played sports. I did speech and debate. I did Model UN. I was in the chess club. I did a lot of stuff. I had, you know, I, my parents, uh, recently I, I went back home because my sister passed away and I was visiting with my mom. A lot of my sister's friends were coming over and, you know, kids that I knew in my childhood mm-hmm. and they were all comment about how in my house was where they learned to have diverse tastes. Hmm. Wow. You know, my parents, I w- we were exposed to an incredible breadth of music. Mm-hmm. R&B and soul and a little rock and roll and classical and jazz and world music. Like all of that was stuff that we heard regularly, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and then like I show up in the eighties as I'm being, you know, a teenager, like 13 years old. And I discover some, start to discover music that's nothing like what my parents are into, you know, like the art of noise, electronic music and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, and I expose my siblings to that. And, but my house was like that in every respect. My mom was always cooking dishes from my wife just made my childhood favorite dish, which is this African peanut stew called mafe. Hmm. You know, I mean, we grew up eating, you know, a, a broad variety of things and reading a broad variety of things and, you know, mm-hmm. being questioned and challenged in our opinions, you know? And mm-hmm. so we were, I was lucky, very lucky to, you know, have, been exposed to a lot of different things and to understand that there was even more that I wasn't being exposed to. Do you think your high school, like where you went to school, did, were you exposed to how, how, how was the hot, your, your school education? You feel like it well, was up to what I you went, wanted? I went to two different high schools. Uh-huh. My freshman and sophomore year, I went to a super snooty private school called St. Albans. Mm. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say at St. Albans, I met uh, Jesse Jackson, one of Jesse Jackson's sons. I went to school with him. Mm. I met, I met Rockefellers. Mm-hmm. Um, I met at the time Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush because his kid, his grandchildren were go, going to school there, mm. and so he would come up with Secret Service and run track on our track mm-hmm. while we were out there at football practice. Yeah, like. <laughs> I mean, he came up and shook our hands and, you know, we, we got to talk to the secret service guys, you know what I mean? And like, I, was, I remember talking to him, I was like, Hey, what's your bag? He was like, it ain't my lunch kid. You know, <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> you know, and yeah, we got to trial. I got exposed to a lot of cool stuff there. Mm-hmm. My second school was Benjamin Banneker model academic senior high school, a mm-hmm. public school, but it was like a magnet school. It was a, an alternative look at educating high school kids. It was a bit mm. of an experiment. Yeah. And those two schools, yeah, I met a, a, a really interesting array of different kinds of people. 
I was my I'll never forget my AP US history class. That was one of the formative classes of my entire things hmm. I've ever done. Yeah. You know, my AP English teacher let me write my thesis paper on Frank Miller. Yeah. Nice. You know, we had to we had to pick an author. So uh -huh. I picked Frank Miller and you know, he was like, you know what? He goes, I don't know comics. He goes, but I have a friend who knows comics. So he'll help me grade it. And yeah, uh, and, you know, I got to do that. Cool. Um, we got to take all kinds of interesting trips. Uh, both schools had a focus on community service and outreach. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, with St. Albans, me and a group of kids went down to, uh, I don't remember if it was Kentucky or Tennessee, but we went down to one of those two with Habitat for Humanity to help make the houses for, you know, for the homeless. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I believe my high school experience, I love my high school experiences. Um, okay. You know, I, I was a terrible student. You know, I don't like doing busy work. I, I don't like, I don't like learning at the pace of the slowest person in the class. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, I, I mean, not only was I a bad student, I was a shitty student. You know what I mean? I was a pain in the ass. I know I was, you know, uh, I've never had a greater example of that than when I had to serve jury duty because I was super impatient during that experience. You know what I mean? Oh boy. And, and you know, it, it, it was terrible, you know, um, like I didn't like the lawyers. And so I was really, you know, <laughs> oh, wow. and I was super, you know, I got admonished, admonished twice by the judge <laughs> sir, for, for, for talking, you know, and asking questions. Jurors aren't allowed to ask questions. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, but nonetheless, you know, I had a lot of great teachers who would take a personal interest in me and helping me learn things and trying to engage me, you know, who thought I was smart, mm -hmm. if somewhat, you know, unmotivated and would try to engage me. I, I, I was fortunate in my high school experiences, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know why this popped in my mind. I want to ask this before. So your favorite DC movie, your favorite Marvel movie. And I don't know if anyone else has been doing comic book movies. Okay. My favorite DC movie is the original Superman with Christopher Reeve. Christopher, mm. Superman 1978. There are some good DC movies. The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan movie. Mm. Uh, the first Wonder Woman is amazing. But at the end of the day, every good superhero film owes a debt to Superman the movie. Mm -hmm. That movie is so good. Mm -hmm. And so it embraces who Superman is. You know, it's, uh, it's emotionally resonant. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Uh, you know, it's understands at a certain level, you have to ask about if you're telling a Superman story about how to use power responsibly, mm -hmm. you know, in an enormous power, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, and it was cool. I love that movie. Yeah. You know, I watched yeah. it again, uh, this past year and, I, it's still just, it thrills me. Plus, you can't go wrong if you have John Williams doing the score. Yeah. My favorite Marvel movie. It's a toss-up. Okay. It's hard. It's, There's a hard question because Captain America is my favorite Marvel character. Okay. Before Marvel Studios began doing their thing, I did not believe Captain America could be translated to film. Huh. Well, I huh. just didn't believe I would ever like it. The Captain America movies are hands down the best series of movies under the Marvel umbrella. You know what I mean? In my opinion, none of the others are as consistently good, you mm -hmm. know, winter soldier, the second Captain America movie 
was at that point one of the coolest things I one of the coolest movie watching experiences I'd ever had. Mm-hmm. To have my you know my, one of my very favorite characters done in such a cool movie, you know, was something. And more than that, it the the Russo brothers who directed that movie know a little something about advancing the story through action and giving you a truly emotionally resonant climax. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, both of the cap movies they did, both uh, Winter Soldier and Civil War, you know, the final battle in Winter Soldier, you know, there's, there's these heli characters, heli carriers shooting, you know, boom, boom, boom in the skies and all that. But at the end of the day, it's this guy trying to save his best friend. Mm-hmm. And they're fighting each other, and it's super emotionally resonant. Yeah. And then, in the sequel to that Civil War, it's Cap versus Iron Man again for you know with Cap's best friend in the balance. Mm-hmm. Amazingly good stuff. But then, Endgame, when Captain America picks up Thor's hammer and starts mm-hmm. fighting Thanos, mm-hmm. and more than that, when he gets up. And you know, after Thanos knocks him down, you know he's getting up, and he does not believe he's going to win, but that's not going to stop him from fighting. Mm-hmm. I love that shit so much. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's Winter Soldier or if it's Endgame. They're both amazing. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I I don't know if I mentioned to you before that you know I I I is in a group home house group apartment. I roomed with uh, Tony Russo, so I I know some of his. Oh you know, really? For a year, yeah, a year in college. Oh wow! So I know some of his influences. So I'm not surprised at all how well they did with those movies. You know, knowing what they were into, you know, what Tony was into, and and as as you know, the two of them, what they liked. So that's cool. Yeah, really that's into se- yeah. They were really into '70s movies, and I saw some of that influence in um in some of their Cap stuff, like that old oh, '70s sure. vibe. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So yeah, I love, and I love the '70s too. So that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, but. Marvel's best movie actually is neither one of those. The best Marvel movie is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, that's a good one. That movie's incredible. I, I can't believe how good that movie is. Yeah. Uh, great soundtrack. Again, super emotionally resonant film. Mm-hmm. Funny and genius execution in terms of the visuals. Mm-hmm. Genius execution. Uh, that movie, I, I, I always say that's a top five animated film of all time and a top five superhero film of all time. Yeah. That one just kind of, I did not know. I know everyone was like, Oh, this is so great. You got to see it. I didn't know what to expect. And I was, I loved what I saw. That was yeah, so it's good. crazy. I mean, if, if I was asked what are the two best superhero films, I might say into the spider verse and the Incredibles, hmm. you know, I okay. might say they're both animated. Those two movies are fantastic. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. What about shows? My favorite show is The West Wing. That is my favorite TV show. Uh, that's not a, a genre show. It's not, you know, it's just, you know, but it, I just, and, and I see its flaws, but I just love it. The first four seasons of the show are, are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I think you can learn a whole lot about storytelling by watching Star Trek. Hmm. Uh, I think, I mean, Next Generation, there are so many great episodes of that show. Um, once it found its own identity, once it stopped trying to be 
Star Trek the sequel, hmm. and it actually became Star Trek the Next Generation. Yeah, it got really, really good. Yeah, but I love the Expanse. We, you know, we talked about that already. Yeah. Um, but I was actually asking about. No, I'm glad to hear what you just said. But I was actually wondering about comic book um, shows. Oh, 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 comic book shows. Okay. The original Batman 66 was very formative for me. I loved that show as a little kid. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard not to say that Batman the Animated Series isn't uh, the best show, but there are a lot of good ones now. Mm-hmm. Young Justice is a good animated show. Um, a really good version of the DC Universe. Hmm. Oh, man. Uh, um, the first seasons of Daredevil and Jessica Jones oh. on Netflix – Mm-hmm. We're insane, so good. Yeah. And oh, are you watching WandaVision? I I'm going to. I've I've been I haven't had a chance to, but I know everyone's talking about it. And I hope it hasn't been spoiled for you. It is not yet. Like it's one of those again, kind of like the Expanse. You got to mm-hmm. let yourself get through the first couple episodes mm-hmm. because they're setting something up. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And you're kind of, you know, my, my wife, she, the first couple of episodes, she was like, okay, babe, if you say so. <laughs> you know, this is really weird. Like, it's it's certainly, if you watch just the first two episodes of that show, mm-hmm. you're not going to be, you're going to, you're going to be left thinking, this is not what I go to Marvel for. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, you know, with only one episode left, you know, it's like, oh my God, this is the next great Marvel thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's really good. <laughs> it's yeah, really I, good. I got to see it. Um, but yeah, I just I just haven't had a chance yet. Um, and it's funny. I just watched Iron Man last night, the first Iron Man. Oh, okay. And uh, I was reminded that Paul Bettany did the voice of Jarvis in the first Iron Man, and Jarvis eventually becomes the Vision in the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. So. Paul Bettany is the longest tenured actor in the MCU. Huh. Yeah, that's a trivia question there. Yeah. Huh. You know, because Robert Downey's done. You know, it's, and Nick Fury, you know, uh, Samuel Jackson has a cameo at the very end of that movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, Paul Bettany is really the longest tenured actor in the MCU. Huh. I guess I want to ask, well, what's, what's, I've, I've hit a whole bunch of points. Um, I guess you can't, like we said before, you can't say anything about Sonic except that you're on the writing team. And... Except that I'm writing it, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And I, I will confirm that Sonic will run fast on this show. I will confirm that. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're not going to do a twist? With, well, I'm not even going to joke. Jokes, even jokes can go sideways in this industry. <laughs> yeah, for sure, yes. Um. Okay, so that's so that'll that's um that'll keep you tied up for a little while. Um, normally, I ask what your next project is, but you're just starting a project, so. Well, I'm 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 in the middle. I'm squarely in the middle of this pro- of, of my time on Sonic Prime, mm-hmm. at least for the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, when is it supposed to come out? When it, when does it end? Sometime in twenty sometime in twenty twenty two. Okay, that's the schedule. Yeah. Um. And does, um, and you don't have to. Say, I'm, oh God, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask. So the animators they they get the script and then they start doing the animating, right? That's how it works. Uh, some of the stuff they do ahead of time. You I guess know? Some... Um, like 
in the writing I've had, I don't think this is betraying any confidences. I've had some, you know, concept art at least to mm. refer to, you know, um, because, you know, this is, things have to be built. You know what I mean? Like the visuals have to be built. So I, yeah, but yeah, the, the, the story stuff, yeah, that has to wait for the scripts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I mean, the animation team will come back and say, yeah, we can't animate what you just wrote. You have to figure something else out. You know? Oh, that happens. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Hmm. I guess so. I guess I hadn't thought about that, but um, I guess that would throw a whole wrench into whatever. Um, and yeah, I, guess... I mean, I, you know, it's a cliche about getting notes when you're a writer in Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, and how bad they always are. Um, that has not been my, I get a lot of notes, don't get me wrong, but, mm-hmm. you know, and I get notes from multiple sources, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Sonic is a Sega property. The show's going to be on Netflix. There's an animation studio involved. You know what I'm saying? Like they all, and they all have to give notes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I've been lucky to that. I feel like almost every note has been something where I'm like, I either have to explain this better or yeah, I have to change this. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not, I guess the executive producer, is that the one, the referee sort of like, who decides what's what? I, I don't want to say that. I can't really speak to the role of executive producers exactly. Mm-hmm. I know that our executive producers are pretty hands-on, you know, and they definitely are people, you know, we can talk to about story. I mean, are, but they're like the creators of the show in that sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Okay, so where uh, where can people find you online? Where's your website, your social media, all that? Well, the first best place to find me is uh, at hunterblackcomics.com. We post a new page of the comic every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, I just posted yesterday, page 1,386 went up. Wow. Um, Tomorrow, I will be reviewing the three pages that we'll be posting for next week. I'll Mm -hmm. be reviewing the lettering, uh, making sure that everything makes sense. Nothing needs to be rewritten. Every Sunday, I also, one of our revenue streams for 100 Black is our Patreon account. Mm-hmm. You know, people can support the comics through Patreon. And one of the rewards for people who give us $5 a month, um, I do, I preview the upcoming page, week's upcoming pages for them. Yeah. And I do commentary on those pages. You know, I talk about our, our creative process. What I'm, I, I, I'll provide links to what I'm referring back to earlier in the comic. Mm-hmm. Um, I might say, look, this was named after my friend, Chris Alvarez's D&D character, you know, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this character's an asshole, Chris's character is not an asshole, but that doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. And that's uh, just Hunter Black Comics and S Hunter Black end. Comics with an S at the end, yes, yeah, HunterBlackComics.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at HunterBlackCom, letter X, C-O-M-X. Mm. Okay. Um, I have my own website, justinpeniston.com. Uh, Peniston is spelled very regrettably, you know, one end in the middle, one end at the end. Um, uh, or you can find me, uh, I'm also a member of the Popsicle podcast group, uh, P-O-P-S-K-L. It's an anagram, it's an abbreviation for pissed off psychic scary kids of LA. Huh. Because one of my co-hosts, 
was in a picture and she looked like one of those crazy like children of the corn kids you yeah. know like look, staring at the camera you know <laughs> it's like she looks you know she looks like this pissed off scary psychic kid you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and that just morphed into our name so now we're called popsicle that's cool um yeah and, and you can find hundred black uh comics uh on facebook uh uh you can find me at hundred black writer on instagram mm-hmm. hundred black writer instagram yeah okay all right um that's all the questions I have. Um, you have any final thoughts or words to wrap this discussion up? You know what? I got my first shot of the vaccine today, just before we did this, actually. Yeah. And I just want to remind people to wear your damn masks. <laughs> yeah. Keep wearing your masks, you know? Like, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but only if we act right. So act right. Wear your mask. Yeah. That's my final thought. Yeah. And you can wear a cool mask, you know, get, uh, you know. Yeah, I got some cool paisley masks. My mother-in-law makes me, like, masks out of, like, Hawaiian print and stuff like that. Yeah, you wear a cool mask. Rep your rep your fandom. Rep, you know, get a freaking, I don't know, get a Dodgers mask or a Lakers mask or, a, you know, <laughs> you're in D.C. Get a football team mask. Washington football <laughs> team mask. <laughs> yeah, you know. Do they have a logo? A W. A W. I haven't yeah. Even, yeah. Okay. All right, Justin. Well, thank you very much for talking to me about all this. It's been really fun. Chris, thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, yeah, cool. In the next episode, I speak with Suparno Banerjee, who's written a book on Indian science fiction. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. And follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.